Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. This podcast is developed by Friends for a Nonviolent World, FNVW, whose mission is to champion nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every living being. Violence impacts us all. Our goal here is to give voice to people who are working to use active nonviolence those who have experienced violence, and those who have committed acts of violence. Each week, we'll hear stories that will deepen our understanding of violence and the principles of nonviolence. Our host today is Joanne Perry, a longtime activist and lifelong pacifist. Welcome. My name is Joanne Perry, and today we're interviewing Sipra Jah with the Asian Women United, the AWUM. The AWUM's focus is to bring an end to domestic violence in the Asian Pacific Islander community while promoting self-sufficiency and healthy families, partners, and children. This podcast is part of our series focusing on the Asian community in St. Paul, Minnesota, and the direct impact and work being done to prevent domestic violence within our culture. Our podcast explores the ideas, concepts, and interplay of active nonviolence, also known as pacifism. And today we're hoping to delve into the ideas behind pacifism and its value as a way of life, as well as the tools necessary to promote health within a community. Welcome, Sipra. Thank you, Joanne. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. Please tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and um, what brings you to this world. <laughs> what brings me to this world? Um, I was born and raised in India. I was born in the northeast state of India, um, it's Bihar. And um, when I was three years of age, my father, who was a doctor, uh, moved to the north of India. Uh, my mother, my two other siblings, we all moved to this state called Himachal Pradesh, which was in the western Himalayas. It's in the mountains. That's where I grew up. It sounds beautiful there, at least from our culture standpoint. Yes, it, it is. It is a beautiful, it's a lovely place. Himachal was very serene, very scenic. Um, it was, uh, you know, pristine. And this was, you know, how many years ago? So it was it was unexplored. There was no tourism. Um, it was a beautiful, the majestic Dholadhar range and lush green deodar and pine trees. I mean... I cannot explain how beautiful this place was. It was in, set in the Kangra Valley of Himachal Pradesh. And so that's where I grew up, in Himachal Pradesh. You had both your parents too? My, my both, both my parents and um, an older brother and a younger brother. And then 10 years later, my youngest sister was born, which was a wonderful surprise. But <laughs> yeah, so she was born in Himachal. You somehow ended up in the United States. How did that happen? Yes. Uh, my husband, who was a student of English and comparative literature, decided that he wants to go for higher studies to the U.S. And he enrolled in a Ph.D. program at the University of California. So I joined him a year later with my uh, three-year-old daughter at that time, Nana, who is now 40. <laughs> but um, uh, so I came with him and we were in California while he was doing his Ph.D., and then many years later, after he com finished his PhD, <clears throat> uh, he was offered a T 
teaching position at the University of Minnesota. And that's how we came to Minnesota in 1989. I would love to hear some early stories of yourself, but why don't we get to that later? Let's talk okay. a little bit about your program, because as you and I discussed briefly, yes. uh, it is quite an amazing program. Can you tell us something about it? It is, and and I'm I'm actually I, it's just an honor to be working there for me. It's a privilege. I consider it a privilege and an honor. Um, Asian Women United of Minnesota started out as a, a task force. Um, there was a group of uh, women activists, Asian American women, who saw that there was this need for uh, a safe place for uh, women, uh, immigrant refugee and refugee women who were coming from Southeast Asia, uh, from, you know, from the large South, South Asia, Southeast Asia, who were not seeking services, uh, even though they were in violent homes, because they did not want to be at a mainstream shelter. They were not comfortable being uh, at a mainstream shelter. And there were many barriers for them, language being one of the biggest barriers that they felt like they were not able to connect to the service providers. So this task force started out in 1993. In 1996, Asian Women United became a 501c3 and got a nonprofit status. And then in the year 2000, the shelter was built specifically uh, for uh, women and children who were fleeing violence and who were coming from countries like China, Thailand, Korea, Burma, India, Nepal, you know, the whole region, South Asia, uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia. It's a 24-bed shelter. It's called the House of Peace Shelter. And I always laugh about it because it's by no means peaceful. There are a lot of children there and it can be very noisy, but it's a lovely place uh, for women and children. Well, before you go too far, it mm -hmm. is the House of Peace? It's the House of Peace. Good. Yes. The agency is Asian Women United, but the shelter is called the House of Peace Shelter. And of course, it needs to be um, clothed in anonymity. Nobody can know where absolutely, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a confidential location and I'm not at liberty to tell you where it is. <laughs> I can see somebody listening and needing the services. Mm -hmm. How do they connect with uh, the Asian Women United? Sure. So, you know, we have a community advocacy program as well, uh, where we have community advocates who go into the com our communities and uh, give presentations, create awareness uh, amongst women. But we do get calls from either the um, clinics, hospitals, law enforcement, and various different agencies, and word of mouth as well. Word of mouth and referrals, if I... And I'm, referrals, yes, okay. yes. I'm glad you're there. Yes, and I, it, I, I think there's a huge need, and, uh, you know, we fulfill that need. That's very unfortunate, I feel like. Why does there a need for this kind of a shelter where, you know, women and children... It's devastating, but nonetheless true. Well, my guess is people who are using your shelter are not just facing the language barrier, but you immigration issues, uh, Absolutely. food issues, Absolutely. child care issues, money issues. Name it, yeah. name it, and those barriers are there. And, uh, you know, of course, cultural issues as well. We, uh, we are a very um, culturally centered and a culturally sensitive um, um, program. But at the same time, if we have the space, any woman, any ethnicity, it doesn't matter. If she is fleeing violence and needs help and we have the space, we welcome. We welcome that. Yeah. I'm so grateful for your program. So am I. <laughs> 
How did you get called to this work? I know that you were not the victim of domestic assaults. And you've, you've got a fascinating story, and if we have time, we'll talk about it. But mm-hmm. how did you get called to doing the work with, with abused women? Um, so it's a, it's a long story, and it started out as, as a young, um, as I said, I grew up in Himachal Pradesh. In a, uh, my father had, was in a transferable job, so we would move out into different towns. He was he would be the chief me- he was the chief medical officer of these um, sit- little towns. So my my moment and I think my journey began. I feel when I was sixteen or seventeen, I remember, and it was in Dharamsala, a town called Dharamsala, which literally means a shelter, or uh, it was it was a place where. Um, you know, it's a place where we, it, that's the that's the meaning of the term dharamsala. But the reason that um, I say that that was where I think I st- this whole journey started for me was my father was the chief medical officer of dharamsala, and refugees from Tibet were all fleeing into India, and that was there the city of exile. Okay, so and people were fleeing from what we would call the death. Yes, the, from okay. from Tibet, and so there were refugee camps. And yes, okay. from from Chinese persecution in 1959, and so Dharamsala had become the hub of the Tibet, Tibetan refugees. And my father was the chief medical officer, so he was in charge of making sure that they were provided all the medical facilities, and and he was also the physician to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Very important man. Yes, so. At that time, and I, I, I was, you know, in high school, and uh, my father um, was a very progressive man. And he, uh, he told me, he said, uh, he sat me down one day and he said, I think you should come with me to see how, you know, this whole new population lives. And maybe you can um, play with the children, talk to the women, see how that scene looks like. And so I, I used to tag along with him. And uh, this was many years ago, but I still remember that coming back from spending the time with those refugee children, I felt like this is this is what I want to do. And I told my father, I said, Papa, this is what I want to do in life. And he said, okay, so then you need to study and you need to, you know, pick the, uh, uh, the subjects that you would like. And I um, studied international law, political science, and women's studies. And um, women's issues were always very close to my heart. Are there connections to your story that others might not see, that working with refugees and somehow going out and studying women, women's issues. But how did that put you in domestic abuse shelter? That is still a leap. Um, that is still a leap. But, you know, that, that piece, the, the distress, the stress that I saw in, in amongst those refugee women and children, I, I knew that there was a lot more to that story than just, the, um, just there being refugees. There was a lot of, you know, violence that had occurred in their families as well, trauma of different kinds. And that always stuck with me. I knew I couldn't change the world, but definitely make a difference, you know, the little bit that I could do. And I said, I'm not going to shy away from that. I will do my little bit to help. And many years later, when I found Asian Women United, that was like, oh, oh my God, this is my calling. And this is what I was meant for. And, um, in 2008, and, and I'm here. You are the shelter's director? I'm the shelter director, yes. yes. That's yes. a really big job. 
it is a challenging job, but I have I have to tell you, Joanne, I've loved it every single moment of it. I've loved being there. I feel honored and privileged. I salute the women who walk in there. I have learned so much from them. Can you tell us a little bit about how this has, has impacted your view of violence? Uh, one, it's like enough. I've seen enough. I don't want to. I don't want to walk in and see women crying, stressed about their situations. Why? Why? There is no reason. There is no logical reason for it to be. Every single person has a right to a life of peace, and wholeness, and stability, and joy. And the impact that this has on the children is immense. These these children are, for no fault of theirs, are put in the situation where they don't have any stability. They don't know where they are going to be the next day, because you know these are emergency shelters. These are not long term stays. So the child is again going to move again. You know, going to be in an unstable situation. It's very painful. I think. There's a lot of work to be done, and I wish that I never had to do this. I wish that I was out of a job. When I walk in through those doors, I see these women doing what they need to do to survive, taking care of their children, taking care of their own situations, meeting with advocates. Most of the women that we see have immigration issues. They can't speak the language. They are uh, not familiar with this American system. They don't know how to take the public transport. They don't drive. They have children, no education, no skill sets. They're most most of the women that we serve come from the rural parts of Southeast Asia or South Asia. Not that domestic violence doesn't hit women who are very highly educated. That's absolutely a myth. I mean, I have also worked with women who have PhDs and who who have jobs, but yet are in stuck in this situation. It is horrible, and it's going to get worse. I mean, once, let's say you can get away from the domestic violence and yes. nobody's hitting on you. Have your own demons inside. All that anger, frustration, poverty, immigration, Absolutely. language, food, I, the, the it seems overwhelming. It is, it is overwhelming. And we do have, I mean, Asian Women United has made sure that we have a on-site counselor and therapist uh, who's an Asian woman. She's a wonderful therapist as well as a ther- wonderful person. And uh, she comes in every Monday uh, for five to six hours to and does one-on-ones with women um, because they have so much to on their minds. There is so much that they want to talk about. And um, each story, each and every story is, it takes you to a different, a different uh, level. I mean, you know, sometimes disbelief. Sometimes awe, sometimes, um, I mean, as an advocate, you have to be strong yourself and, you know, make sure that you don't give in to those emotions at that time because this is so hard for the women. But it happens. And sometimes we as advocates will go shut ourselves in our rooms and cry because we are human as well. Sipra, please tell us about the study your organization was part of for violence against Asian women and children in Minnesota. What made your organization decide to participate and what was the purpose of it? Yeah, this study conducted was conducted in 2016 and it intended to collect data on the prevalence of domestic violence among Minnesota's Asian population, as well as to examine the cultural context for this violence. 
this study was commissioned by the Minnesota State Legislature and led by the Minnesota Department of Health in partnership with the Council on Asian Pacific Minnesotans and Department of Public Safety, as well as the Department of Health. Understanding the context was critical to figuring out what would be the most effective strategies to address the violence against the Asian women and children. There were many challenges, I think. The quantitative data was not representative of uh, Minnesota's diverse Asian population. They did an excellent job of the anecdotal data that was collected, captured in the participant interviews. They did a great job of summarizing it in that report. The study was focused on the prevalence and nature of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, sexual assault, abusive international marriages, stalking, and trafficking. And you said, why is Asian Women United interested in this? Well, whenever there is a conversation about domestic violence, we are on the table. Uh, AVM tries to participate uh, in all these conversations. Our role as the sole provider of Asian-focused shelter and advocacy services in Minnesota is to amplify the voices and perspectives of the women and children who who seek our support. Excuse me for a second. Mm -hmm. I did not know you were the only group out there helping. Uh, We are the only Asian-focused shelter and agency in Minnesota. We have a huge Asian population. Yes, and 24 beds doesn't do justice. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. Oh, my. It's nothing. So our crisis calls, you know, are it's throughout the day. We get so many crisis calls, and we have to turn women away because uh, the stay for the women at the shelter um, doesn't uh, always, is not always 30 days. It exceeds because they have immigration issues. And that can take anywhere from eight months to a year or even more. So this stays for the women at our shelter is much longer. And also, I mean, it's it's a, such these stories, it's not um, in a day that the woman can, you know, it, it takes time to build that trust with the advocates, to be able to open up to your, you know, these are your intimate life stories. And you have to tell them to a stranger. It takes a while. It takes a long time. Need time to breathe. You just need time to make space between what was and what might be. Absolutely. I'm really struck because we interviewed a woman not very long ago mm-hmm. who had her wake up call in domestic abuse. It wasn't the abuse wasn't at her, it was at her child. But it was when some advocate came to her and said, Tell me your story. Mm-hmm. That awareness that every one of us has a story. Every woman has a story, and it's a different story, and it's their journey. It's it's a, it's you know your journey, and it's it's different, and it's just, so, so. Our role as advocates is to uh, make sure that we customize our services to the life of that woman and to her story. I remember we did a project a couple of years ago. It was called Talking Suitcases. It was a lovely project. As soon as I heard about this, I was like, I went to the executive director, who is a wonderful woman, Claudia Waring is our executive director. And I went to her and I said, Claudia, this is what I want to you know, bring in. This is the project we should do. And she said, what is it? And I said, it's called Talking Suitcases. It's talking to me. 
even though I have not been in a, in a violent situation, I have not faced domestic violence, but as an immigrant woman, it talks to me. I came to this country with one suitcase. Everything important that was close to my heart was in that suitcase. That was it. My whole life was in my suitcase. Migration is very hard. Migration has a lot of, you know, um, it's almost like a cultural bereavement, if, you, if I may say so. Because you're leaving all your traditions, everything that is close to your heart, your family, your loved ones, your your traditions, your culture. I mean, culture is, you know, that is another story. But, uh, you know, you leave everything and you come and, and, and try to assimilate in a different culture. And so I think to myself that if it was so hard for me, who knew... I mean, I haven't, you know, I, I, English is not my native tongue, but at least I, I know the language. I can communicate. What about these women who, who don't speak that language, who are not aware of, I knew what America was all about when I was coming. You had an education. You had I, I was a privileged, yes, sides. and, and that was privilege. Yeah, and a job. And a job. I, that was privilege. But when I, I I work with the women that I serve, I feel like no, this is you know, this is not enough time. This is not enough. There's a lot more that needs to be done. We do need to hear what talking suitcases is. <laughs> well, you can always watch it on YouTube as well. But um, this this project was about women. Uh, it was an art project. They made little uh, things, you know, little artifacts, and it was about memory. It was about where you started out, what were your dreams and hopes, and your journey from a refugee camp to the United States. I mean, during that journey, so many things have happened. Many women have, there are layers of trauma that women have and children have gone through because you are displaced, you leave your country, you're in a refugee camp, there was rape, there was violence, there was all kinds of things, hunger, poverty, emotional and sexual abuse all kinds of abuse. So um, when they come here, they have, you know, dreams, an American dream, that I'm going to go to this country of, uh, you know, this land of promise. And then when they, you come here and you find yourself again in a, in a domestic violence situation, oh my God, your whole world falls apart. We are interviewing Sipra Job, and we have just spoken about the study that so many uh, official governmental agencies were involved with, the study that your organization was part of for violence against women and children in Minnesota. Uh, as a result of that study, did you gain insight and how did it help your program deliver services? So the results of the study validated what Asian Women United of Minnesota has been trying to do since its inception. That was to that is to provide services in a style and manner customized to the needs of Asian women, um, most of whom who have who have had a refugee or immigrant experience, many of whom are English language learners, and many of whom have been geographically and and culturally severed from their families of origin. So no, Asian Women United of Minnesota has not changed its approach to service delivery. You had mentioned in an earlier conversation about the number 
of people uh, fleeing domestic abuse had also increased recently to people fleeing the sex trade. That's correct. And most uh, of these people were coming from Asian populations. Obviously, they wouldn't be coming to your shelter. That's correct. So it's it's in the in the recent past we have seen an increase in the sex women who are coming in through the sex trade, and the prime primary source countries being China, Thailand, Vietnam, um, Philippines. Um, and these are women who are coming, who are being lured in, uh, in uh, to uh, to America to um, in in search of good job and a good good money, but they don't realize that they're coming in and going to be sucked into this slavery and this trade. So um, we're seeing quite a few of those coming in. I think we really should be quit calling it the sex trade and start calling it the sex slave trade it because is, that's what it is. It is slavery. It is slavery. It is absolutely slavery, and it is um, it's it's one of the worst things that get to happen to a woman. You know, when they um, I've worked with many women who have been the victims of that, but yet it's it's very difficult because um, every story, every woman that has talked to me about this story, it's for survive. <laughs> it's it's for their survival. It's for a reason. One of the women told me a story that my heart, even today, when as I tell you the story, it, it breaks my heart. She told me that she has a young daughter whose dream is to study in the United States, who wants to go for higher studies. She said she has so much debt. She, is, she doesn't have money. But a friend of hers told her that I, she could make money in the United States if she came in as a tourist for a couple of months. And she was, of course, you know, this is what she got into without her even knowing it and uh, and found herself um, in the jail there was you know the police got her and um, and then she she was brought to the shelter but there's so many stories like that thank you it moves me too and yes it's it's, it's a very it's a very difficult thing it's a very difficult thing to talk about but that's what's happening my guess is and I might be wrong that the program um, Asian Women United would provide very similar services to those who are escaping the slave, sex slave trade versus those who are fleeing domestic violence? Or is there a, a different sort of program? Uh, the program, I mean, it, we, ha- we are a shelter, so we provide uh, food, uh, shelter, and, you know, services. But the services that you provide to a woman who has been trafficked are definitely a little bit different than than what you could provide for a domestic violence victim or survivor. Yeah, that, that differs a little bit. And then, and then for that, we need a lot of collaboration with different other agencies to make sure that we're providing her all the services. Because Asian Women United is a, very, is a small agency and we don't have that much capacity. But that is where we need collaboration. So we collaborate with different agencies, um, say civil society or uh, International Institute of Minnesota, and victims advocates from the feds, you know, from FBI or Homeland Security, to make sure that this woman is taken care of and that, you know, she gets the right services. I'm glad there's something of a network out there. Yes, there, uh, you know, and, and we have to reach out to that network. And um, there's a, that's very one very good thing about Minnesota is that they work collaboratively. Well, let's ask the question. We have maybe somebody out there who is listening to it right now wants to know how he or she, probably both she's, can 
get hold of you, you, rec you recommended either asking the police, getting a referral there, or going to one of the domestic abuse shelters and getting a referral from there. But how would somebody actually talk a friend of theirs in who might have a couple of children? What, 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 what can he or she do to help a friend get help? Well, they can, they can, there's a, in Minnesota, we have a day one site. It's a, it's a website that connects all the different shelters and services within Minnesota, which is a great network. And we are with that network. So she, they can call the day one crisis line, or they can call our Asian Women United House of Peace shelter crisis line. It's, Both of those are on the internet, correct? Yes, and and I I can you know there's a the day one crisis line is one eight six six two two three one 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 eight six six two two three one 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 and we ha have a twenty four hour um, crisis line as well and they can reach us at six one two seven two four Eight eight two three. Good. Thank you. For mm -hmm. that. This is a hard, hard job, and I do know you mentioned that you have to sometimes just close the door and cry, <laughs> so that yes, so you can create some level of distance. Yes, but that's a momentary space. What yes. actually sustains you in this work? Hope. 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 Hope, because. Uh, Hope is to want something to happen and think that it's possible. So my hope that there will be a day, friends for a nonviolent world, <laughs> I see it right there. So there will be a nonviolent world someday. There is hope. There is hope. We all have to work towards it, but there is definitely hope. There's always, a, a you know, at the end of the tunnel, there is light. And we always have to work towards that, that yes, one day, one day, one day, it will happen. You are, for the people who cannot see you, a, a very calm, centered, not big woman, it's not tiny woman either, but a woman um, of a certain age. Yes. And with a beautiful smile and, and kind, kind eyes. Thank you. I would. Well, it's not really complimentary. I'm trying to describe <laughs> you to people out there in the world because they may not understand that this petite person is actually changing the world one step at a time, one woman at a time. I won't need to mention here that uh, Sipra Jha was awarded the Distinguished Service Award by the Minnesota Department of Public Safety for her commitment to women and children in Minnesota. That's quite an. Um, Quite an award, quite amazing. And before you stand back and say anybody could have done it, and I know that's probably one of the first reactions, what was your initial reaction to receiving this award, and what are your plans to staying committed to this work? I was very surprised because I and I am not. I'm. I. I really mean it when I say that. I think that there are so many other. Uh, people who are and women who are doing this work and who who have really done a remarkable amount of work in this field and um, I have learned from them I have admired them and I I never for a moment thought when I I wasn't even I you know I didn't even know that I was nominated for that award I was actually leaving the room to go to um, I, I don't know I was going out to, through the door when somebody called me and said hey hey where are you going you know 
and then I suddenly heard my name being announced. So it it was a very humbling experience. It was I was very touched, and um, I knew that I have friends uh, in this field who are you know much who have done a lot more work than I have done, but I was happy. I I I won't lie. I it it made me really happy because I thought, okay, maybe I'm doing something right. Maybe I'm going to I'm doing the right thing, and in you know. So um, it did make me very happy, and that you know the work, whatever little I have achieved, that it it's acknowledged that I'm doing the right thing. I'm going the right way. I'm on the right path. One of the things I really like about it is is this. Distinguished Service Award goes to somebody who's working in a real way to improve the, the lives of people who have been so traumatized and so set aside. And I'm the trafficked women, I mean, they are frequently seen as the dregs of society through, for the most part, absolutely no choices or fault of their own. No. And now they are kind of permanently put in a, a box that's very, very hard to get out of. Yes. But your work addresses that. That, I think, is amazing that the Minnesota Department of Public Safety even noticed, let alone recognized it. So, yes, I think you deserve every award you can possibly I, imagine. I, I would say that, you know, I, I, I'm, I am privileged and I'm honored to work with a team of advocates. And this award is for all the people who are working in this field. It's not just for me. One person cannot do anything. It's it's all of us together who can make a difference. The differences in the numbers, in the in you know all of we, all of us doing this work collaboratively. Well, now that we are on next step, and then you had the study, and you got this lovely award, an important, <laughs> impressive award from the Minnesota Department of Public Safety. Mm -hmm. What are the next steps after that study and award? I think what I look at it i mean what we do the work that we are doing is kind of um after the fact um why should women have to go through this at all and that's that's my question and that's what i am going to focus the rest of my life or you know doing learning about it and trying to figure out what can we do to prevent this from happening in the first place why would i uh, would we want a any woman or child to go through this, um, this absolutely horrific nightmare. Um, so prevention work, prevention work is very important. Creating a, a, awareness about about domestic violence for many many years now, it has been a very silent issue. There has been a veil of silence around domestic violence, and it's time that that veil is lifted. It's time that we talk openly about it. It's time that we, um, uh, there is no shame. Because the shame is not for the person who has, who is on the receiving it. The shame should be the person who is perpetrating that violence. I see value in talking about something, lifting the veil of silence, as mm -hmm. you say. What else can be done to prevent domestic abuse, actually, and also sex trafficking? Because they are, they may not work hand in hand, but they aren't that far apart. I think as long as there is inequality, this will not change. This will continue. There has to be equality. And when I talk about equality, I, I mean like we want to make sure that the girls and women, we give them an education, 
so that they're independent. They can take care of themselves. They're not financially dependent on anyone. But that that too, I mean, I have seen women who are financially de- independent and yet in abuse. So abuse comes from po- this idea of power and control and from patriarchy. So that that needs to be dismantled. And that's that's a bigger issue. That's a bigger issue. And that's something that we all as a society have to work towards. I have heard the argument that patriarchy harms those who seemingly benefit from it just as much as it harms the victims that receive the the blows in the end. And the argument is, is that there is responsibility that is skipped, awareness and brain skills that are not met in a patriarchy when you live in a space of privilege, when you live expecting your meals and your food and the education to Mm -hmm. be handed to you. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some truth in that. And I also know that for people who are in domestic abuse situations as a perpetrator, Mm -hmm. they quit seeing different options. They start worrying that they're not loved because their women are only saying they love them because they're hitting them. They're afraid of them. And they also get caught in this terrible trap. It's hard to remember that, of course, when mm-hmm. you're on... On the receiving end. Yes, <laughs> that's the right yes. way to put it. It's very hard to remember that. But there is a true advantage in dismantling this patriarchy where everybody is seen as the same value. Of course. I mean, you know, that is why, I mean, we talk about promoting healthy relationships, a family, a happy family. I mean, you know, and and men are just as a big part of that family. And there are many good men around the world. There are. But so that is what we need. We need men and women to come together. And it's a call to men. I mean, you know, we work with, um, there's a great organization, Men Forward. Uh, we work with them. Uh, Peng Tao, who was also a shelter director at Asian Women United at one time, uh, he's done great work talking about, you know, what is masculinity? What does being a man mean? And so for us to uh, bring up our boys, teaching them that, you know, to respect women, to treat them as equals from the very get-go, from a very young age, teaching them those values, I, I think that that will make a difference. At some point. You are probably not aware of it, but we did have a representative man forward already on one of these interviews, Zhang Vang. Oh, and yes. He, <laughs> yes, and he is really vocal about the need for mm-hmm. men to show up and change the yes, situation. Yes, yeah. and then, and men, uh, we want men to join our, our, our fight. I, you know, this is, this is for, for all of us to be living in a peaceful, happy, harmonious family and have a great community, I mean, for our children. And our grandchildren. And our grandchildren, yes. Well, this is always, of course, about the story. Mm -hmm. That's how we, as human beings, learn Mm -hmm. and live and connect. Can you tell us where you see your work going in the near and distant future? I think I will continue to do what I am doing with more gusto but also looking at prevention and, and, and talking to community, creating awareness, creating a community where women and children are safe. You know, they say it takes a village to raise a child, so it must take a village to protect a child as well. That's a very nice insight. And this was something that was brought up at Man Forward, and I, I thought this was wonderful. You know, just as we, we, it needs a village to raise a child, we also need to protect the child, and we need a village. We have to create protective environments where we work, play, and live.
and uh, make our communities a safe space for women and children and everyone else. Men were children once too. Yes. And born out of women. That's absolutely true. And they yes. will bear children but, and women also. Yes, exactly. So it's it's a whole, you know, we, we need men in our, you know, this is, this is for all of us, men, women, children, all of us together in this. What advice would you wish you had heard along the way or would you like to share that you've heard along the way? I think um, the advice is to really understand that this is, it's for all of us. It's not just men, it's not just for women. It's for men, women, and children. It's for the whole family. Before we let you go, how can people who are not currently part of your community be helpful and useful? What can the rest of us do to support you and the work that you are doing? I would reach out to our communities that as communities intervention of neighbors, when something when they hear um, uh, something that's happening in a neighbor's home, please don't, it's not a private issue. It's not, a, domestic violence is not a private issue. There was a huge campaign. This was a wonderful campaign. It was called the Bell Bajau campaign in uh, 2008 that, in India. And this campaign was so successful across the country. It was, Bell Bajau means ring the bell. So if, uh, uh, say, I'm walking down the street and I hear that screams or noises from uh, another apartment or a house, I just go there and ring the doorbell. And um, it's just to interrupt that cycle of violence. And that was so effective in India because it was, it was like a neighbor's, you know, it was like a neighborhood watch. Like, hey, we are watching you. Don't, this is not acceptable in our community. We are not going to let this interrupt with our, you know, the safety of our women and children. Those are good words to leave us with. And I thank you for that. If we become aware at any level of dom domestic abuse, of fear, just the act of ringing the bell will disrupt the cycle, if only for a moment. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence. Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World and the work that we do, please visit our website, fnvw.org, or give us a call at 651-917-0383.